Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 47th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. We would like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Digital War Room, one of the leading platforms for e-discovery. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is the proposed changes to Rule 37E of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. We're delighted to welcome Jim Kurse, a partner in the Alexandria, Virginia law firm of Redmond, Payton, and Browswell, LLP. He was formerly a litigation partner with Womble, Carlisle, Sandbridge, and Rice, PLLC, and Reed Smith, LLP. He has also served as a federal prosecutor and a federal government antitrust attorney. He has extensive courtroom experience in business litigation. He's taken in excess of 180 trials to verdict, including more than 40 jury trials. The focus of his practice is electronic discovery and information governance. Thanks so much for being with us today, Jim. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. So, Jim, we're, we're looking at proposed Rule 37E amendments to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. And, of course, you wrote a terrific commentary uh, on those uh, proposed amendments. What, what's your perspective for examining this new rule? Well, Sharon, I'm wearing my trial lawyer's hat. We often find ourselves in federal court on both sides of the spoliation issue. Uh, and in the commentary and in the discussion today, what I hope to do is uh, simply identify how the rule works and to draw some consequences for ESI preservation from the rule. I'm not taking a position whether the rule is good, bad, or indifferent. I'm trying to be as uh, as neutral as I can in the assessment. One comment, you mentioned the, the article we've written. If people who are listening would like to take a look at the article, it's, immediate, it's a, available for immediate download from the law firm's website. If you go to rpb-law.com, and on the lower uh, left side of the home page, there's an e-discovery tile. Hit that, it'll take you to the e-discovery page. And on the right side, you'll see the download to the article. Uh, you might find it helpful as we walk through it. Or after the, the discussion, you may download it and uh, read it at some other time. So, Jim, help, help us out here and, and tell our listeners where this proposed rule fits into the, the e-discovery landscape. Well, John, if you, you go back to the 2006 e-discovery amendments, uh, we covered a lot of business at that time, but there were two pieces of unfinished business uh, as of December 2006 when the rules became effective. Uh, we had not addressed the privilege issue. We knew that was going to require a separate statute, and we had not adequately dealt with the issue of lost or missing ESI, the whole spoliation question. You know, we answered the, uh, uh, the privilege question with Federal Rule of Evidence 502, and even though the the original rules, the 2006 rules, included a spoliation provision. Most people regarded it as a placeholder. So we left uh, 2006 with two pieces of unfinished business. We've covered one of them. And the last piece to the, the overall puzzle is the ESI spoliation solution. And that's what Rules 37E is all about. In the commentary, you quote Judge David Campbell, the chair of the Advisory Committee on Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, as saying that, 37E is the most challenging task any of us on the committee have ever undertaken. So can you explain to us why this proposed rule is so challenging and why it's so important to get it right? Well, I'll give you my best read on it, Sharon. Judge Campbell has been at this for a long time. And when I, I read his quote, 
and I had to sit back and appreciate how much work they had all put into this. Uh, the process of getting to where we are today has taken about 10 years. And during the course of the debate on the 2006 rules and everything since then, uh, 80 to 90 percent of the debate has really been about how to deal with the spoliation problem. Uh, and people have very strong feelings about it, and it uh, plainly has a significant impact in federal litigation. Uh, the uh, the rulemakers began in earnest in 2010 at the Duke Conference. There have been over 2,300 written comments. Uh, there have been over 100 witnesses who have testified at hearings across the country. So there's an awful lot of work that's gone into this. And as, as I said, it is a very significant part of federal litigation. ESI uh, spoliation is a, a major part, often a second front in civil litigation in courts across the country. Uh, the rulemakers knew they had to address it, and they knew they had to get it right. So let, let's get into the, the rules workings a little bit, Jim. And when does when do we encounter Rule 37E, or when is, when is it going to be applicable? Well, let me take it, your question in two parts, John. We're working through the amendment process. That's all set out by statute. If the the rule continues on course and it clears the three remaining hurdles, the rule will become effective December 1, 2015, 15 months away. You might also interpret your question to mean, well, when does the, the rule apply in, in the normal course of litigation? Uh, right. When would it come up? And what would the, the requirements be before the court would actually get into the analysis that 37E dictates? The rule is surprisingly simple given the, the complexity of the task. And the, the rulemakers have come up with a, a basic text to the, uh, the rule. And the text proposes a three-part test. All parts have to be met before the court can go on and consider either of the, the spoliation uh, avenues after that. And there are two subparts uh, following the text, uh, subpart E1 and subpart E2. The key part, the way that the rule starts, though, is with a three-part test. Let me go through those parts quickly, and we can answer questions about them afterwards. First, the the rule applies only to electronically stored information. This was a significant turn in the process where the rulemakers have been trying to fashion a rule that dealt with all kinds of spoliation. Uh, they simplified it and went just to ESI. And the, the first test is that the ESI, it applies to ESI that should have been preserved in the anticipation or conduct of the litigation and is lost. Here we're referring to the standard uh, case law uh, test of reasonable anticipation of litigation. The The second requirement is that the ESI has been lost because a party failed to take reasonable steps to preserve the information. That's one short sentence, but put a star next to that because I'm going to come back to that. I think that is the most important provision in the rule. And the third uh, step in the three-part uh, test is that the missing information cannot be restored or replaced through additional discovery. The court has to make an additional, uh, an initial inquiry uh, to establish that all three of these tests are met before it proceeds uh, in the consideration of any spoliation, uh, certainly any spoliation-related sanctions. And if the test is not met, uh, the court has to bail out, and there are no sanctions at all. Okay, so let, let's assume that a particular case, the, the three-step te test has been satisfied. Uh, at that point, what does the federal court go, do next? Then there's a fork in the road. There are two options. If the court finds that prejudice has been proven, then it can impose a series of remedies. And I use the term remedies, not sanctions. The court can improve, and the language of the rule is, it can order, quote, measures not greater than necessary to cure the prejudice, end quote. That may not tell you a whole lot, but there's a fair amount of case law out there that 
uh, identifies the discretion given to a court to resolve uh, or to impose certain remedies in response to, uh, to missing ESI. Uh, for example, they can impose fines, uh, they can make evidentiary findings, they can order additional discovery, they can shift costs, things such as that. But what cannot happen here, and this is the other key in the statute, based solely on a finding of prejudice, a court cannot order the most serious sanctions, which include an adverse inference instruction or a dismissal of a claim. Uh, that is what happens on the second fork. And to do that, to get to the, uh, the test under subpart E2, requires a showing that the, there was actually an intent to deprive the other party of the use of the ESI in the litigation. Uh, I term this the black-hearted conduct uh, test. <laughs> but you can see what, a, what options a court has. It has to uh, clear that first uh, three-part test before there's any consideration of remedies or sanctions. Second, on the prejudice under subpart E1, uh, there is a limited number of, uh, of remedies available, but most importantly, the most serious remedies are not available. And finally, under subsection E2, before a court may go to the most serious sanctions, it must find an intent to deprive one party of the use of the ESI. And between subparts E and 1, there had developed a split among the circuits. And what the rulemakers are doing is resolving that split uh, and clearly resolving it in favor of the, uh, the, the more stringent test, what I call the Tenth Circuit Black-Hearted Conduct Test. <laughs> <laughs> I like your names. <laughs> Lo love those adverse inference instructions. Those are gifts from God. <laughs> well, and, and unless you're the one getting it. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our sponsor, the Digital War Room Platform for eDiscovery. Don't be caught unprepared for eDiscovery. Digital War Room eDiscovery software allows you to search, review, mark, and produce responsive email and documents. Powerful enough for your biggest cases, but easy enough for first-time eDiscovery attorneys. Geeks need not apply. Digital War Room has a solution for every client, every case, and every budget. Visit www.digitalwarroom.com for a free trial and see how easy eDiscovery can be. Make your next case your best case with Digital War Room. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today our topic is the proposed changes to Rule 37E of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. Our guest is Jim Kurtz, a partner in the Alexandria, Virginia law firm of Redmond, Payton, and Broswell, LLP. Jim, the committee note makes the point that the proposed Rule 37E forecloses a court's reliance on its inherent authority as a basis to order ESI-related sanctions. Is, is this uh, big news? <laughs> I think it is. The, uh, the case law has long recognized the court's authority uh, to manage its, its docket and uh, basically to, uh, to manage the cases that are before it. And that's been identified as the court's inherent authority. Some courts have attempted to put bounds on it, uh, but it, it, my view is that it's a fairly free-flowing source of authority. The inherent authority had been used by several federal judges uh, to fashion their own uh, rules and procedures to deal with ESI and spoliation. And what the rulemakers are seeking to do is to impose a uniformity across the federal courts uh, and to, uh, to tie the judges down uh, to only the 
the procedures and the remedies available under the specific rule. Inherent authority is ex expressly disavowed uh, in the committee note. Chair, let me make the, the observation that to understand this rule, uh, perhaps unlike some other uh, procedural rules, uh, you need to read the text, but you also need to spend a fair amount of time with the committee note. The, the rule is reasonably threadbare. Uh, so somebody looking at it uh, without appreciation of any of the history and certainly the uh, the commentary in the note uh, would not pick up a lot of the uh, the important points and some of the nuances in the rule. Uh, the note was very carefully negotiated uh, to say that it is the product of several years of discussion and debate is a fair statement. So pay attention to the note, uh, read it in conjunction with the text, and come out uh, – your understanding of it will be the combination of the two. Well, I, th I think it's a great idea to get rid of this and to foreclose the inherent authority, which has led to, I think, a lot of decisions that have been all over the map. Well, we've seen that in the e-discovery uh, process, literally going back to, to 2000. You know, when the, the economy changed and we had this wholesale shift from paper records to electronic records, uh, the courts had to make adjustments. And we were stretching uh, the old rules. Rule 34, for example, was twisted and turned in ways that uh, were simply uncomfortable. And we had different uh, courts, uh, different circuits going in various directions. And we had multiple splits uh, among the circuits. And it was the appropriate response of the rule makers to come back and impose the uniformity. And that's exactly what they're doing here. We had a very clear split between the second and tenth circuits uh, in how to deal with some of these uh, spoliation issues. And the, the rule makers... Uh, appreciated that uh, it was their responsibility to resolve that, and they have done it. Well, well Jim, the, the topic of ESI preservation has been debated for, for a long time. I know Sharon and I have been involved in many of those discussions in, in many cases. And the, the companies, they complain constantly that these preservation costs, are they spiral out of control just to preserve, and that those costs can equal, if not exceed, the costs of e-discovery processing and production. Um, I know you made some commentary about that and how this new proposed 37E is going to give us some guidance into that. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, John. The uh, the cry for some guidance was the, the second part uh, of the, you know, the move for the rule. As we talked before, we needed to have uniformity in the courts as to how we were going to uh, address ESI and the spoliation issue. Uh, but any number of companies uh, were literally screaming for, for guidance. Uh, they didn't know what they had to preserve, uh, how long they had to preserve. Uh, simply, it was a, a blank slate. And to be careful, a company had to go to the, uh, the most extreme situation. And that could often be extremely expensive. The rulemakers thought uh, and considered various ways to answer this. There, was, there were three proposals actually advanced. One of them was to give very explicit guidance as to what was to be preserved. The second one was to give general guidelines on preservation, but without any specific uh, guidance. And the third approach was basically a back-end approach, which is to say, okay, here's what the test will be. Now you figure it out yourself. The rule makers went for option number three. Uh, I, uh, I'm going to violate my rule and offer a, uh, an opinion on this. I think they did the right thing. The, the technology moves so quickly that any rule that would come into a place now could be technologically obsolete in two or three years. And keep in mind that the rule we're talking about, uh, 37E, had its beginnings what, 2006, 2007. So it's a seven to eight year process to amend the federal rules. So the rulemakers uh, went to option number three. They would give us general, uh, uh, they would tell us the tests and then let us work backwards. What they came up with uh, was the, the reasonable steps test. 
And that's what I talked about before when I said we needed to put a star on item number two in the three-part test. If you take reasonable steps to preserve, then you're home free on spoliation. I think it's that clear. It's a three-part test, but the focus will you know, almost always come down to you know, did you take the reasonable steps? Now, I, I, perhaps I've, I've overstated it there. The first part of it is did you observe the trigger? Did you preserve at the appropriate time? But once you're over that, the question then is, okay, what did you do? And the, the rule has just one sentence on that. But if you read the rule and the note, as I mentioned before, and how the note says that there's to be proportionality in consideration of the ESI preservation, and you read the Sedona Conference 2010 commentary on legal holds, you've got the foundation uh, for what I term a preservation safe harbor. And I think this was very intentional on the part of the rule makers. Uh, I think it's uh, it will be welcomed by the community. Uh, the exact specifications for this uh, certainly will have to come through case law. But if you go to the Sedona commentary, there are a series of guidelines. And if you look at the 2010 commentary, uh, guidelines 8, 9, and 10 give you a pretty good outline of what's going to be required uh, so that you are establishing or uh, proving that you have taken reasonable steps. And notably, they're not telling you in technological terms, what you have to do. For example, they don't tell you that you need to go capture the email and archive it in a particular way. Uh, they're going to leave that to the, uh, the technicians, but they're telling you that if you want to have a defensible process, uh, you need to have a, a process that is documented. Uh, you need to have a process uh, where the records of what is going on are auditable, uh, a process where your, uh, your legal hold is periodically reviewed. Those essentially are the requirements. Uh, Sedona does a, a nice job of laying them out for you. And my position is you can take those requirements and from there to a, a system or a process is a fairly small step. So the bottom line on it is drawing out of that text, that point, if you take reasonable steps, I think that uh, we're well on our way towards a meaningful safe harbor. And I use that term uh, appreciating that the, the 2006 amendments included uh, not a 37E, but it, what was then 37F, a provision that was termed a safe harbor. Tom Altman uh, coined the, uh, the expression that this was not a safe harbor at all. It was simply a lighthouse that, uh, that warned of shoals ahead. Uh, I don't think we've had a safe harbor in this area, certainly not to this point, uh, but that's certainly what the, the, the business community is looking for. And my read is that uh, people are going to be able to take the, the rule, uh, couple it with the points I've, I've mentioned, and you will see emerging from that a, a fairly well-defined ESI preservation safe harbor. Uh, and because there's a proportionality provision in that, I think you're going to find that pre preservation uh, may become a much less onerous task for any number of companies. Well, that's certainly what we're, we're all hoping, and I agree with you. We have not had a meaningful safe harbor, and everybody really needs to, to find one. Uh, and I really appreciate the effort uh, here to, to make a, a rule that really makes sense. But to state the painfully obvious, at this moment, the proposed rule is just a proposed rules. So can you explain to us what hurdles remain for the proposed rule to become part of the federal rules? Uh, and do you think the proposed rule will actually make it through the process, or will snipers or lobbyists uh, ambush it along the way? That's a good question. Let me start by pointing out briefly where we have come uh, in the last several years, uh, and then pick up uh, to answer the, uh, to identify the remaining hurdles. The process, I think, formally started at the Duke Conference in 2010, uh, where 
the the advisory committee met uh, to to start the the discussion uh, on the shape of a rule. Uh, we went from there to uh, a mini conference in Dallas, uh, and during that process, there were several drafts of a rule that were promulgated, and those uh, attracted, as I mentioned before, over 2,300 written comments uh, and public hearings across the country. In my experience, in 35 years uh, in litigation, uh, we haven't seen anything like that with any other rule, uh, certainly not at the federal level, nor am I aware of anything at the state level, uh, certainly in terms of a procedural rule that attracted an awful lot of attention. The rule in its present form came out of the advisory committee meetings last spring, and it then moved to the standing committee. The, uh, these are both committees of the judicial conference. The standing committee approved with only minor changes the, the, the rule that came out of the advisory committee. And in two weeks, it goes to the full judicial conference. The consensus view is that the judicial conference will approve it without change. I appreciate that the, the two committees that have put in several years of work uh, are committees of the judicial conference. Uh, it's no secret to the conference what's been going on. Assuming that we get past the the judicial conference, the rule then goes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court uh, needs to act on it by April 2015. I expect that the court will do exactly as the judicial conference recommends. They will approve it without change. Again, keep in mind that the judicial conference is actually a committee that, whose powers are delegated uh, to them by the Supreme Court. Uh, now that leaves Congress. Uh, the the statute that provides for the process of amending the federal rules gives Congress the last say on it. But if Congress does nothing, the rule then becomes effective as it emerges from the, the Supreme Court. Congress would have to take affirmative action uh, to derail this. The uh, Some people would say that the chances of Congress doing nothing are uh, are fairly high. Uh, <laughs> it's historical. It's a precedent. <laughs> uh, but the other side of it is that uh, this rule uh, has generated an intense uh, amount of debate, and some people are very heavily invested in the outcome, uh, and some people are very unhappy with the, the turn uh, of events, beginning with the release of the advisory committee rule. Uh, the, uh, well, it hasn't happened uh, in the last 40 years that Congress has stepped in and said, no, if it's going to happen, uh, this, this would certainly be the time where you might expect some sort of an ambush. All, being, all that being said, uh, it's still my bet that the rule emerges uh, as is without any significant changes and that it becomes effective uh, December 2015. Well, Jim, one last question. When the Rule 37E completes, is, is that going to finish everything off? as far as the e-discovery amendments to the federal rules, or is, or is there more that's uh, anticipated and in the pipeline? John, let me answer that in two steps. I think it finishes off what we started uh, back in about 2002-2003 with the amendments that uh, we refer to as the 2006 amendments. Uh, as I mentioned earlier uh, in our discussions today, there were two pieces of unfinished business. With 37E, we now complete the mosaic. The, uh, with that... Uh, doesn't mean that we we won't have uh, subsequent amendments to the federal rules. Uh, keep in mind that these amendments were driven by changes in the technology. And if you go back to just 2006, we didn't even have an iPhone. Google was a nascent uh, technology. And in fact, the, the verb Google wasn't even introduced into the, uh, the dictionary until 2007. Cloud, uh, social media, all these are new terms. And they certainly have the potential to upend the 
the way we conduct business in exactly the same way that uh, the proliferation of email and electronic records did so a decade ago. I have to believe that the uh, the rules will continue to be amended uh, to adjust to the, the technology and the requirements uh, uh, to make sure that litigation moves forward in some reasonable fashion. Uh, I can't tell you what those are going to be, and I'm not aware of any rules that are in the, the pipeline at the present time, but I'm certainly not going to go on record and say uh, saying that uh, the completion of 37E uh, is the final uh, final word and that we should not expect any other uh, amendments. I think just the contrary. There'll be uh, issues that come forward uh, and we need to address those. And although we don't seem to do it very quickly, uh, we do get the process done. That sounds like an opinion to me, Jim. Another opinion. <laughs> but but it's one that we agree with, and certainly we've seen the, the same thing as technology has shifted, and it shifts so quickly today. Uh, we, we you know The law is always limping behind technology trying to catch up, uh, and that's really what's happened here in part. Um, we sure want to thank you for joining us today, Jim. We, we loved your commentary, and uh, you know we, we only see a few people who know so much about this particular subject, and I know it's of interest to a lot of folks. So thank you for bringing your expertise to our podcast. Podcast. Well, I appreciate again the invitation, Sharon, uh, to you and John. Thank you very much. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all of the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review us on iTunes. And you can find more about Sensei's computer forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.